Hi, Stably. Hi, Jerry. How you doing? Doing well. How are you? I'm pretty good. Pretty good. No, no prepared quip this time. Okay. So <laughs> I'll allow it. Yeah. Um, pretty calm. Feeling pretty good. Uh, enjoyed this last book we read. Oh, excellent. Uh, I did too. Spoiler alert. Ah, it was called The Final Pagan Generation. That's right. Rome's, <clears throat> Rome's Unexpected Path to Christianity by Edward J. Watts. Uh, and this one was your pick. It was my pick. Uh, tell us uh, about Edward Watson and what this book is. Well, first, um, I wonder if I should begin with why I picked the book. Or do you think we should say no, that? No, I don't want end? you. I don't. Uh, I think you should hide that completely. Oh, God. Okay. No, sure. <laughs> why Why did you pick this book? <laughs> so um, there is there is a man. Uh, there is a man <laughs> named uh, Are we sure? Are we sure he's a man? He's real. Yeah. No, but he could be a god. He's a Khan. Uh -huh. He's a Razib Khan. And uh, so Razib Khan is a geneticist by training, but he has been blogging and writing on the interwebs for well over a decade, closer to two now. And I've been reading him for a long time. And even though he's a geneticist and a scientist man and all that, he is uh, very into history and uh, politics and culture and all of that good stuff, but he's uh, very into history. So he's been talking about this book for a while, but especially in the last year or two years, um, he has made very cryptic comments on the mm -hmm. Twitters <laughs> about the pagans and the Christians and uh, which one are you and uh, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, this is all in reference uh, to this book because the book is a story, as the title says, about the final uh, pagan generation in the Roman Empire, uh, born and raised in the 310s and 320s AD, if I'm allowed to say AD, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, who kind of come of age in the mid fourth century and are just passing uh, from the scene in the, uh, the later part of the fourth century. So like the 380s and the early 390s. And this is when, uh, as the kids say, uh, shit starts to get real in the uh, Roman Empire with the uh, fighting and ethnic, or I'm sorry, not ethnic, but social unrest between Christians who are kind of in the ascendancy and pagans who are, I don't know, descendancy <laughs> in decline. <laughs> decline. Uh, yes. Decadence, one might say. One could say, one could say. Um, and uh, what Razib Khan likes to point out is this is actually, even though it is not written as such, this book is like, a, it's, it's, it's a history book. Um, this book is, you could draw lessons from the book and the way that the last pagan generation uh, experienced this decline of paganism and the rise of Christianity and apply those lessons to today. So, um, yes. Yeah. So a couple things. So one, maybe we don't need to explain who Edward Watts is. He is basically a historian, a historian. on Rome. Mm -hmm. Correct. <clears throat> and, and this book from beginning to end is nothing but a very serious history of the fourth century in Rome. Right, with yes. a focus on the Christian citizen. So, so that's what this book is. It has nothing to do with anything else except that. Yep, it um, is a history book. Yeah, it's in the. Yeah. It's in like a academic uh, series called the Transformation of the Classical Heritage. Right. So it's all about yeah. random Romans that no one's ever heard of, <laughs> uh, <laughs> such as this. <laughs> and uh, and it's just that Razib Khan, who I agree with you, is probably one of the most interesting public intellectuals uh that we have now amazing that he is not doesn't really write for any uh organized outlet um from time to time he does i think like frog city journal and stuff um i guess he he for, for like a minute he was uh some kind of online columnist for the new york times there is a and very it, there, there's a history for that and he could plausibly claim to be one of the first people to have been canceled by Correct. Uh, the PC woke by mobs mobs. Yeah. Yes. And this was like five, six years ago. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. He, he was too, too hot uh, for the times, even though he's certainly qualified to he's more qualified than most New York times columnists <laughs> yes. opinions about the world. One could say um, too spicy, too spicy. Yeah. Um, so, but he, it points out that this book is a 
good metaphor for mm -hmm. what's happening today. And in particular, it's that when people think about the fourth century, um, <laughs> I do every day. <laughs> And, and even historians, they think about it as this time of a revolution, mm -hmm. right? There's this radical sh like switch that went from the Roman Empire having, you know, and, and having long been this pagan empire to you have Constantine, right? Convert, you know, converted to Christianity, became emperor. Um, and then like there's this revolution when then Rome becomes this Christian empire. And what Watts points out at the very beginning of the book is that for people living during this, they would have no idea. You know, people who, who were born in the 310s and died in the 380s or 390s, right? Um, they would never have identified that they lived through anything revolutionary. For them, this was just, I mean, you know, they saw stuff changing, but to them, they're like, Oh no, this will all stay at the universities. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, it'll right? stay on. Uh, it'll stay on it'll campus. Stay on campus. Um, you know, this is just uh, some kids um, rebelling. They'll grow out of it. This isn't really gonna, um, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And they never could see what happened. Yes, exactly. So the uh, the the book begins with, and just I will be mispronouncing everything left, right, and center. So I apologize to any Roman Americans um, <laughs> listening. Your beautiful culture. Latin uh, Americans. Uh, so, well, <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, so the story begins with the destruction of the, and how would you say it, the Serapium? Uh, I think so. Serapium? Serapium. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Uh, is yes. there an there? Yeah. Uh, well, which is a temple to Serapis? Or Serapin? Serapin, yeah. Yes, Serapis, you're right. Excuse me. So this was a, a giant temple in Alexandria, ancient Alexandria, possibly one of the biggest buildings around. It's kind of built or was built on top of this hill. And uh, the book begins with the story of its destruction in 393 AD. 393. 393. So, it, you know, it begins at the end. Right. Um, foreshadowing. Foreshadowing. That's right. Or not. I don't know. <laughs> um, and um it's it's destroyed as a result of essentially uh mob violence between christians and pagans uh, in alexandria right and a, there's a christian mob went up mm -hmm. the hill and destroyed this thing yes and that sparked you know mob street violence between pagans and christians and christians like basically mopped the floor with the pagans yeah and actually i think it was it the the mob violence began because like the bishop of alexandria received permission to do something with old temples and then the pagans went crazy right. and then they i think they they hold up in the serapium um under the leadership of various grammarians <laughs> and, <laughs> and philosophy teachers uh they went around beating up and killing christians and and probably wrecking churches and then they held up in the serapium right and you know this was you know, like a sectarian riot or right. mob violence, um, not not just uh, protests and demonstrations, very peaceful, right. largely peaceful. This was largely unpeaceful, and it led to the destruction of this ancient, kind of ancient, because it had been rebuilt recently, <laughs> uh, temple. Uh, to Actually, is a uh, uh, an Egyptian god. Uh, it is not, I believe, if I understand it correctly, this was, uh, yeah, yeah, not a Greek or Roman. Not a traditional, yeah, yeah. Not, not an originally, yeah. But yeah. The, the Romans, of course, um, had this, you know, quite sensible practice of when they conquered new peoples, just adopting their gods as part of their pantheon. Yeah, very promiscuous, very, as long yeah. as you, uh, and this is a point that the author <laughs> makes, as long as you honor the uh, the forms and norms and pray to the emperor and participate in certain required ways yep yep it um it doesn't really matter what you thought um as long as you are willing to pray basically for the the health of the emperor and do a few specific things they didn't really care if you were jewish or believed in serapis or whoever um and they that, cared about actions not thought yeah exactly so um when this happened 393 ad the the last the final pagan generation had essentially died out by then um, in fact, I think the last 
person kind of profiled in the book had died that year and maybe mm -hmm. didn't witness uh, the destruction of the, the Serapium. So that's how it begins. And, you know, and then that's the introduction. And then it flashes back immediately to the three tens and he identifies four people, four men that he focuses on and he proceeds chronologically more or less decade by decade. And the way the book is structured is the first part of each chapter is kind of a, a capsule history of what's happened in that decade or kind of leading up to it. And then the second half is more or less, this is what was happening to these four men. And these are their ups and downs and all the letters they wrote and all the ways they sucked up to this emperor or that emperor. Um, and then it kind of finishes with the conclusion of kind of wrapping up what happened in that decade. So that's how the book proceeds from the 310s when these four men were uh, babies, kids, to the 380s, 390s when they were kind of dying out and, uh, and leaving the scene. Right. So <clears throat> the reason he picks these four people uh, is because, number one, um, they are representatives uh, or representative of what an elite man of that age would be like. Um, so these are not just like um, just anybody. These are all people who, you know, were basically elites. Um, they were they became senators or um, otherwise were you know at at the top of the society. And um, second, the other reason he picks these people is because well, these are people for whom we have good records, right? We have all their correspondence. We have all you know. Uh, uh, all of their records. Um, uh, and so it's yeah. easy to write about them. Yeah. And it's more like they have some record. I don't know. I, I, I yeah, think, yeah. Not all. Of course. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So in even, so, I mean, the four men, if, if anyone is interested, there's <laughs> Libanius, Themistius, and these two are pagans and they're, um, they're academics, they're teachers and philosophers. And there's this uh, Asunius, who's a Christian, um, from, from Gaul, like modern France and Bordeaux. And he's also, uh, a teacher, a teacher of rhetoric. And then finally, uh, there's uh, Credic Status. Credic Status. Oh, come on. Credic Status. Uh, he was a pagan. He's the most high born and elite of the four, although all, all four were, were close to various emperors and held high office. He was born into a, a very elite family and held some of the highest offices uh, that you could in the Roman Empire. And um, yeah, these were, uh, as the author points out, we, we don't have records for 99.9% .9 of the people who lived and died, right. uh, especially when you're talking about kind of normal people who weren't senators or professors of rhetoric or teachers of rhetoric. And we really don't have that much to go on for a lot of these famous people either, uh, or famous or just um, elite people. Predic status, actually, there are no... Um, remaining copies of his letters so when the when watts talks about him he's going off of what other people wrote about him or said about him and that's survived so that it's very interesting that at least to me that he's able to do that yeah, yeah. he's able to do that but then it's and this is just kind of goes to the way the book is put together it's it's interesting that they have these letters and they're kind of how long does it take to send a letter from like Antioch to Constantinople back then? It's kind of amazing that they could even communicate like this. I mean, and some of the letters, I mean, not to get to far afield, but like some of the letters they're sharing with each other, different texts. Like there's one where I forget who it is. That's asking <laughs> somebody who was on a campaign with an emperor to send over his um, uh, campaign diary uh -huh. but of course he's not sending gonna send over his original so this would have to be i mean there was so much there was so much paper back then, i guess presumably so. there's so much copying and so much um uh transcription and it's amazing yes uh, and they've they spent so much time just like writing letters i mean i guess we did this until very recently where there was like the memo it was just like what most people spent time doing which is reading and writing memos exactly yeah so yeah. That, was, that was libanius who mm -hmm. lived in largely right. in antioch so um the other thing to kind of keep in mind and this was um as i you know, as we were going through the book or i was going through the book it's a little hard to remember that at this point the roman empire had been basically split that there's a yep. western empire and an eastern empire and they're 
it gets a little complicated and about like who is the emperor because there's mul there are multiple emperors and then there are multiple pretenders and <laughs> usurpers and all the rest so libanius and themistius these are pagans they're kind of teachers and sophists they're living in the east and then predicstatus and asunius they're living in the west and um libanius and themistius actually communicate with each other i'm not sure how much the other two talk to each other or with the other with the others so that's that's the scene we've set the scene so how do you want to proceed because i i mean we could in theory go through decade by decade <laughs> talking about these four men's lives which is very interesting to read sure. but i doubt would be very um interesting to recount or listen to <laughs> yeah not from, um, uh, not from me at least since uh yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna mispronounce everything yeah so so one thing that i want to point out that I think is also kind of explained at the beginning is uh, sort of the the system that they were born into. Yeah, and this is very important. I think this is very important. Yeah. So so um, this is a system that I think was um, sort of started uh, by Diocletian, and then kind of perfected by Constantine after him, right? Mm -hmm. And the idea is it's kind of there are two parts to it one is monetary right so um roman money had been constantly being debased um and that brought with it all the ills that you can imagine come with that and diocletian kind of put an into that by basically creating uh, uh two new standards for currency there was a gold thing called the uh, what was it called the is it solidius Solid solidius yeah um so basically there was a gold coin and then there was a silver coin. <clears throat> um, and basically the silver coin didn't do so well, but the gold coin did very, very well and it retained its value. Um, and it basically solved a lot of the monetary um, issues that Rome had been afflicted by. And so it, it kind of put the economy back on track. And so anybody who had access to the Solidius um, was in pretty good shape. And because Solidius was such a high, um, denomination coin, it was really only people engaged in um, large amount transactions or really rich people who really had access to it, right? They were the ones who were being paid or paying exactly. yeah. in it. Um, so so there's uh, that piece, but then along with, with you know, the benefits that come from fixing the finances or the monetary uh, uh, problems of Rome is that, is that the uh, empire began to do better and he also kind of um, restructured the administration of the empire and basically um, maybe you can help me explain this but basically improved the bureaucracy in such a way that it opened up many more positions for um, talented people um, to have the ability to work for the empire in administering it, right? So for example, um, he, part of the change was that um, administrative units were made smaller and smaller so that there, so that administration could be more efficient because you're, you're administrating something that you had, you know, easier control over. Uh, and that meant therefore that there was many more positions mm -hmm. for talented people. Um, and these, all these people were being paid in the solidius, right? And so they had it's access exactly, to it. Yeah. Yep, and that um, was very successful. The empire grew, so there were even more positions, right? And so he created this this pyramid, um, <laughs> as it were, um, uh, leading up to the emperor. Um, you know that basically uh, it, it did improve the efficiency of running the empire, increase the revenues, um, increase the positions, and that was just going better and better. And so as a result. Um, all of the elites, and, and certainly the four that are um, profiled here, their whole path of life, right, to success was you would train to enter service of the empire. Mm -hmm. And that's what you were working towards. And then you did. And um, part of the way that you entered service of the empire was that you would um, seek the help of people who were already in right? And they would help you get in, 
it's it's very much kind of like a um an influence peddling racket. it's a, it is an influence it is yeah. influence then it's cronyism it's, it's cronyism um yeah. so basically you know because of who your family was and or whatever you were able to seek out favors that would get you basically uh, you, you know, you get letters of recommendation or introduction and eventually, you know, you'd get in and um, you would get have the sponsorship of different people who are already in La Cosa Nostra, as it were. <laughs> uh, but the expectation of you was that once you were in, you were going to pay it forward. Exactly. And you were going to, um, uh, number one, be available to help all the people who helped you, which means that when they wrote to you about, hey, can you help my son? You were going to help them right and so the pyramid continues to grow so um all of the elite um success was bound up with the success of the imperial system and by the way this is both pagans and christians right yes They're because just, there were yeah. there were definitely christians um in the elite in the elite like we said as, as sunnius all, all the way to the to the emperor Yes, of course, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but even uh, even, um, even Constantine middle, was yeah. the first Christian emperor. Um, but there were already obviously Christians before then who had been um, even up to when he took over, uh, still being persecuted pretty severely, uh, depending on the whim of whoever was in charge. Right. It should be pointed out. Yeah, as Watt says that some of the earliest memories of these people back in the three tens would be that a lot of resources was uh, the Roman empire were being spent on persecuting Christians. Yeah. And by, you know, by the end of their lives, basically the Christians have taken over. Um, okay. So they're dependent on this imperial system, which is basically a giant pyramid <laughs> influence peddling, but it works. It works. Yes. Admit it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So one thing to, I think, remember, or I mean, I'm sure people who know Roman history know this, that when, Constantine took over at the beginning of the fourth century. This was just as Rome was getting out of what people call the crisis of the third century. And this <laughs> is what Diocletian was, was trying yeah. to fix. And this is actually why, um, you know, there were, and I think Watt says there were like 50 emperors in 60 years or vice versa, either way, not good. Um, and just constant civil war, depopulation, cities were being, were collapsing, economies were collapsing, the money had been debased and there was massive inflation. And that is why Diocletian split the empire in two and said, it's just easier to rule this way. I'm gonna shrink the size of the provinces so we have competent people who actually know like what the hell is going on. Um, those were the reforms that he did administratively and also um, I guess monetarily. Um, and, and that's why the, the, the final pagan generation is actually entering a world that kind of works, that people aren't starving to death anymore. And there's massive opportunities for the elite, the powerful to make a lot of money. Uh, something else to note is, and I think it's the solidus, not the solidus. What do we know? Okay. <laughs> um, like, like Jerry said, there's like, it's, it's a bifurcated system. There's this massive massively valuable gold coin that you cannot essentially you cannot split um, because the silver coins fall out of favor they're barely even minted and then there are these like lesser coins that are like bronze or tin that are just kind of covered with a small layer of silver and those those do become debased and they're you can't really use them to buy anything so it turns out that the only way to like be wealthy or really buy anything is to have access to the gold coin, the solidus. And that is reserved pretty much exclusively to the rich and the powerful. So that's why they're actually able to become so rich is that they're the only ones who have access to this money. So that it doesn't really come up in terms of poor people revolting or anything like that. But that's kind of what kicks that whole system into gear is that there is a lot of money to be made because the rich are basically hoarding all of it. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's, that's like interesting. Um, and something else to note that the, these four guys that he writes about, they're not exactly heroes. They're just kind of normal, normal elites. Um, yeah, just living their lives. They're just living their lives. There's a lot of um, sucking up to emperors and, and cronyism and that sort of thing. So that's, that's also very interesting that they're not kind of, they're not cast as heroes or like old sages who are fighting anything in particular. Um, so that was, that was 
and the, the more powerful they get and the more into the bureaucracy they get, the more you see that just really, really a lot of uh, sophistry. <laughs> uh, and I think <laughs> he actually, what they're doing, yeah. yeah, exactly. And I think he actually, at some point I noticed he stopped calling. I think uh, the mysticies is the most, um, or Themistius is the most uh, flagrant about it because he's um, the most mercenary. Yeah, exactly. Because he is in Constantinople, which becomes the capital of the Eastern Rome, Eastern Roman empire. Um, and he is essentially turned into a, a propagandist uh, for, <laughs> for whatever emperor will like him. Um, and that's what he, that's what he turns his skills as an orator and a philosopher into. So he's a philosopher, which everybody respects philosophy. Mm -hmm. And so emperors basically use him. He's allowed himself to be used by emperors to launder uh, whatever whim of the emperor as, you know, logical and truth, truthful. Yes, exactly. Right. Yeah. Because then he, uh, and this is kind of an aside, but it's very yeah. interesting because whenever he starts one of these orations and he, he does kind of become like the pet orator uh, and propagandist for one of Constantine's son, Constantius, he's the one who survives kind of the civil wars that happen after Constantine dies. Um, he just brings Themistius around and makes him give a speech. And usually the first thing Themistius says is, you know, I'm a philosopher. So like, I, I'm obviously telling the truth uh, because philosophers hate to lie. So now I'm going to tell you what um, Constantius wants you to hear. <laughs> so that was fun. Uh, okay. So how should we proceed? So I, I think, you know, like, like, like Jerry said, we, uh, we really don't want to go chronologically, um, even though the book, that's how it goes, because they would just be a recitation of names and dates and emperors and, and things like that. Um, what, so I want to maybe pick on the main theme or a couple of the main themes. Um, and I think Jerry's basically described it pretty well by now. It's that these the final pagan generation, the FPG, I'm just going to call it that mm -hmm. for now. <laughs> um, they were in a system and, you know, it's a, it was a fairly new system when they were young, but by the time they're maturing, it's very well established that, you know, you parlay favors, you pay it forward, you pay it backward. And that's, that's how it's done. That's how you become powerful and wealthy and, you know, don't get tortured and killed essentially. That's, <laughs> that's always a plus. Um, but the only problem with that is it's very hard to leave. So not only is there just the temptation of all the money and like the nice houses, and uh, you probably want to be rich in ancient Roman times and not poor. Um, there's also the fact that you are essentially uh, letting down everyone around you. So it's, it's not just kind of economically bad. It's almost like social death. Um, you can't, you can't leave. You can't pull out of the system because there's a lot of people depending on you. There are a lot of people who you owe and to leave the system and do your own thing or speak truth to power or something crazy like that. Not only would it probably get you killed, but um, it would disappoint every, everyone around you and you would become right. an outcast, like a social pariah. Yep. So that's, that's how it, the system kind of kept itself going. And you know, as we get further into the fourth century and the author starts to talk more about the Christians, um, the Christian generation, I guess you would say the first Christian generation, these people are the children of the final pagan generation. I mean, some are literally the children <laughs> right. and, and some are just kind of metaphorically. These are the people born in like the three thirties, forties and fifties. And they so so let me just stop you for a second yeah. because I don't want to give the wrong impression. It's when you, you said the first Christian generation. I, so no, I mean so so. Of course, oh sure, they're not, but they're kind of the first. It's uh, yeah. How how to describe these people? It's the people who um, are going to end up establishing the Christian dominance. Yeah, or so they're the children, the the CFPGs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to avoid that. Um, I mean. One way to think about it, post-pagan. <laughs> well, so um, so you, you know, um, you've got. It's funny because it's it's kind of the opposite. Uh, I'm I'm trying to draw a parallel to 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 present day, and uh, the point is, let's say you had you had um, whatever. What, what's the, the great generation? 
what's called the greatest generation the greatest generation and then you had their kids which became which are the boomers right and among the boomers you had a counterculture mm-hmm. uh, right so it's like that right yes yeah and he doesn't make that point explicitly but it's, no. it's kind of like it's kind the, of yeah. the kids kind of want to rebel yeah. Because the system that they're born into, the one we just described, it's kind of soul crushing and it's a lot, it's pretty grubby. You know, you write letters because somebody else wrote letters. And as the author points out, very few of these letters, or at least, not all of them talk about the qualities of the person being recommended for office. Mm-hmm. They talk about like, oh, this is my nephew, you know, me he's my nephew. So maybe you want to, I mean, they're a little better at this than I am because they're, yeah, you know, because they're, they're sophists. Yeah. They're sophists <laughs> and they're highly educated, but they were educated into a system where you basically learn how to butter people up. And they don't say that this guy has super high Roman SAT scores and whatever they talk about, you know, how it would be great if you could do him uh, this favor, because I did you a favor or I will do you a favor, or you were helping a very powerful uh, you know, scion of some family. It, it's that sort of thing. So the, the children of the final pagan generation grew up in that system and they, um, as you can imagine, necessarily, young people, yes, yeah. they're young and uh, didn't particularly care for it. Um, or some of them, at least not some all of them. them. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the, um, what, what the book starts to describe in the later chapters is you know, the final pagan generation, they're kind of locked into the system, even if they wanted to, they're not going to leave unless you want to, I don't know, go live in a mountain somewhere. Um, so there's no way to leave, leave. Um, but the children, or at least some of them find that you can join what is essentially Christian society. And we can talk about that. Um, and kind of remove yourself from that network, your parents' network and the network that you're kind of growing into and join a new network or even leave the network completely if you so wish, because there's kind of a a split that the author talks about. So I I would say there's two things, right? So the children start to have different ideas, right? As they do. As they do. And they see the system that their parents' system as soul crushing, as you said, And, and they don't want, you know, they want to opt out of it. Um, and what they discover is two paths, right? So these are, we're talking here about Christians now, right? Yes. Um, they have, they, they, they kind of uh, see that there are two alternative ways um, for Christians. One is uh, they can choose to have status and success in a competing uh, system. Mm-hmm. And that is the church. Right. They can become, they can, instead of aspiring to be a Roman senator, they can aspire to be a bishop in the church. Um, and so that's very interesting to me that this sort of happened pretty quickly where the the church, you know, Watts talks about, um, you know, positions in the church were kind of like not really high status things, you know? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, they were sort of middling status things. Um but then it sort of happened very quickly that the church became essentially very rich um, because it had a lot of, uh, you know, estates um, and that brought in a lot of money and it, that brought with it a lot of requirements for intelligent, uh, talented people to administrate it, which means bishops uh, and priests. Um, and so it, it kind of created a competing uh power center or a competing um, system of status to the imperial system, which is to me is amazing that it was allowed to happen. I guess it happens by virtue of there being Christian emperors who maybe don't see it as a threat. Um, and maybe we should talk about that because I'm kind of interested in that separately. Uh, the second way that Christian kids can go about finding an alternative to entering the imperial system is pursuing an ascetic life, right? So just literally opting out. Um, and this, uh, you know, we can talk about how, what the experiences were, but this does open you up to, um, uh, you know, a program for just kind of uh, 
uh, selling people out, right? Because you basically have gone through school, everybody's done their share to get you up to this point. And then you say, you know what, I'm either moving into a monastery, or I guess they weren't really monasteries at the point, they were just like communities of young men, or I'm going to just go into the desert by myself. And that brought with it like a, a certain level of status that, you know, by virtue of you, you know, being willing to become an ascetic that way. Yeah, exactly. So as Jerry said, um, these, these children were actually just, they were educated and raised in the same sort of environment as their parents. So they have the same expectations. You know, you're going to, I'm going to write a letter for you. You're going to become a guy somewhere in Antioch, and then you're going to write letters for me and my other students. And we're going to keep that, that sweet ride going. Um, so, you know, when they decide to go into the desert, uh, you're essentially pulling the rug, they were pulling the rug out from their teachers, their parents, their elders. And uh, that is not something that people were expecting. They were, the, the final pagan generation was expecting that their, their kids would keep doing what they, what they did when they were younger. Um, but, you know, ironically for, uh, for the people and I don't think they called them priests, right? They were um, ascetics, if mm -hmm. I'm pronouncing that right. The ones yeah. who left and, and were successful in setting up what, as Jerry said, they weren't exactly monasteries, but you could just say they were monasteries um, mm -hmm. um, of other like-minded men. Eventually, there were enough Christians in town, say, that those ascetics could come back and maybe they didn't live in town, but they, they had status and they had power based on their asceticism that they were, you know, holy and, and, you know, true to their faith. So, you know, I'm not sure if that was on purpose or that's just what happens uh, when you're considered to be, you know, so devout, but besides becoming a bishop, <laughs> like, like Ambrose and, and Basil and other people, you could also if you wanted to, or you felt the calling, go into the desert and become a, an aesthetic. And that would also possibly give you status and power just in a, in a different way. Right. And, yeah. Uh, and so um, where do we go from here? So can I just, can we take a step back though? Yes. Um, I think we need to. <laughs> yeah. So when, when did this happen? So this was in the 360s? Yeah. Like the 360s, the 370s. So this is, you know, the, the, fine, the FPGs, they're born in the 310s, and they're starting to have children in the 330s. Right. And those kids are entering their 20s and teens in the 350s and the 360s. Right. But so before this, right, so from 310, or you know, just the early fourth century, up to this point, we see a, uh, a succession of Christian emperors, starting with Constantine, mm -hmm. um, and then there are pagan emperors again. I guess there is, is it Jovian is the last one? So uh, I'm not sure if Jovian is pagan, but Julian. Julian, is, sorry, yes. Julian. So um, well, I think is the last pagan emperor, right? So we, we have a succession of Christian emperors punctuated by Julian, and they go back and forth in the kinds of restrictions as Christians that they place on pagan rituals and pagan practice, some more, some less. Um, but the interesting thing is that the, again, the their typical Roman elite as personified by these four people who were following, they never really see a, that there's a Christian emperor as a threat to, you know, the system that they are tied to B they never see it the restrictions that these emperors place, like at some points, these emperors outright ban the practice of uh, of sacrifice, like the, basically the practice of the pagan religion. They just outright sure. ban it. Um, or like you can't go near a temple or- They'll, they'll close we, down the temple. Yeah, close them down, tear them down even, yeah. Yeah, while the, the elites that we're following are kind of put off by this, A, they don't really, push back on it and B, they're not really worried because in practice, people continue to do all these sacrifices and continue to have these temples and it's all around them. And, you know, it, it's kind of like um, uh, fr frog being boiled kind of thing. Exactly. Right. Yes. 
right? And it's like, it gets a little hot. And then, and, you know, in the succession of emperors, the restrictions um, get tightened and loosened and tightened and loosened and they're enforced, they're not enforced. Um, and so it never really bothers these guys that this is the direction we're going in, that basically we're, 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 we're switching to a world where Christians are running the empire and they are, you know, um, we're, we're, we're slowly moving to the world where the Serpentium is going to get destroyed. Right, exactly. And part of that has to do with, you know, we're talking about the fourth century and even though the emperor is the emperor and basically can do whatever he wants, he can't really because every, yeah. this is a huge empire, the, the fastest, you know, anything moves is like a, a ship or a horse, I guess. So even though um, Constantine and Constantius send out these laws, um, you know, they're from the emperor saying, you know, you can't make sacrifices or burn incense or we're going to execute you, something like that. Um, it's, it's really up to local governors and other officials to enforce those laws. And they really don't have to if they don't want to. Um, and, and they wouldn't because, you know. And yes, it, and they wouldn't because most people are still pagan. Yeah, and it uh, just kind of like would rock the boat unnecessarily and things are going well. Uh, here's a like a part that I highlighted that to me kind of is the like the main nut that I took away uh -huh. from the book. Uh, talking about the elites, uh, they certainly did not approve of the sort of policies that Christian extremists like Maternus had been pushing, but they also saw little that could be gained by actively opposing them. Most temples remained open despite the laws, statues, and images of the gods stared down from every corner of cities, public sacrifices continued to be offered, et cetera, et cetera. At the same time, there were careers to advance, honors to be earned, positions to be gained, transfers to better jobs to be secured, deaths to mourn, issues of inheritance to resolve, new marriages to arrange, and fun to be had. So, you know, yeah, these maybe these young whippersnappers who um, were slowly getting closer to the commanding heights of the empire um, were putting forth these completely crazy new rules that would, if, <laughs> if followed to their conclusion, would completely upend your way of life. But look, come on, uh, really there's something to be gained by actively opposing them. Uh, because they're never really going to succeed. And in the meantime, I've got, you know, if I just go along a little bit with their crazy shit, I will, you know, I can focus on what I need to focus, which is my life, my family, getting ahead, etc. Yeah, exactly. And this is, again, this is, they wanted yeah. to stay in the system because if you really want, you know, you could, there are examples of men who, and of course, these are all men. This is, you know, not a, not a particularly feminist time. So, you know, this is mostly dudes we're talking about. Um, there were examples of men who either by mistake or um, on their own volition went against something that the emperor would want. And usually you are punished in some way. So the most extreme is, you know, killed and tortured. But if you went against something the emperor really wanted, he could take away your land and all your property and make you <clears throat> destitute or, you know, make sure you never work in this town again, something like that. So it was no easy thing to say publicly. Uh, I disagree with that because one, it's probably not going to do anything. And two, you're just going to uh, throw yourself uh, into poverty by doing something like that. Although they did, the final pagan generation did complain <laughs> a lot, apparently in their letters about um, crazy Christians going around doing crazy things and even imperial policy, they would sometimes uh, complain about, but never, never to an emperor's face. Uh, they would always try if they could to essentially suck up and um, do the best they could in whatever the circumstances were. And just because they lived in such a world that everyone was doing that, even as they got older and more and more Christians um, gained power, you know, these, these men are still writing letters to pagans and Christians who are enmeshed in the old system. So they 
you know, there's no internet, there's no TV, there's no radio, no newspapers. They wouldn't necessarily know just the size of what was happening. Um, not because they were avoiding it or anything like that, but they were just enmeshed in a system that was, that, you know, wouldn't want to uh, take on anything like that anyway. And so maybe to kind of get to the end, to get to the punchline, um, what ended up happening was that, again, these competing alternative ways uh, of having status um, developed, and not just that, but a competing power structure in the form of the church established itself in such a way that eventually um, you could just, uh, in, in, a, in, a, in a short matter of time, uh, just completely do away with the pagan tradition. Exactly. And, and it's probably something we haven't hit hard enough that mm -hmm. what, what allows what happened in 393 and then going forward is that Christians figured out or stumbled on a way of creating a separate power structure away from the old imperial system that the final pagan generation was enmeshed in. And that's what, you know, slowly over, this took decades. Uh, it wasn't just, it happened in the 390s. It, it took a long time. Um, they were able to essentially ignore the final pagan generation. The, these yep. men became just not relevant. Mm -hmm. It no longer mattered that Themistius wasn't going to write a letter to you because you were some crazy pagan or Christian you know, lunatic, because you had other powerful men who would support you yeah, and write you, letters for you. It'd be right, because you had um, your network either in the church or your network of ascetics. Exactly. Connected to the church, by the way. It's not like these things are completely separate. Yes. And, and we kind of, we haven't talked about all the imperial shenanigans that were going on, because during this whole time, yeah. there are civil wars and laws and Christians are on top, then the pagans have a little, have a little uh, comeback yeah. uh, with Julian, who uh, tries to fire all the Christian, <laughs> all the radical Christian teachers, which is funny right. and kind of relevant uh, to today. Uh, he tries to clean up the universities. <laughs> right. Uh, that didn't work uh, very well, uh, or at all, um, which was which was interesting. Um, so yeah, it's just uh, they didn't realize that the, the kind of the ocean, the depths were changing as mm -hmm. as they kind of kept doing their own thing. So, uh, you know, what uh, what lessons does that have for today? I mean, <laughs> uh, you know, who could say? Uh, <laughs> but, um, you know, this book has, uh, I think, would have resonance. And there are other people besides Razib Khan uh, on the right, especially who have talked about it. I know Rob, is it Rod or Rob Dreher? Rodrier. Rodrier, yeah. Um, he's, you know, reviewed it and talked about it and, and discussed how it would, how the lessons apply to maybe kind of conservative Christians in America. Um, and, and the lesson is that you, you, you can't work within the system as it's currently constructed. You have to create a new system, a new, a new network of relations um, that has the ability and the power to influence you know, laws and society going forward. Uh, wait, okay, I'm confused by that. What's, what do you mean? Like, what, what is the lesson that you take from this? I, oh. I mean, I'll tell you a lesson I, I take from it. Yeah, you, lesson you, I you, take from it is, is that um, we're screwed. Uh, oh, okay, well, that, sure. I think, I think Dreher also takes that lesson, but, you know, he tries to be, you know, his, his shtick, right? So not shtick, but, no, I, I, yeah, I get it. The constant, what is it? The, uh, the Benedict, Benedict, Benedictine option, Benedict option. Yeah. Uh, but wait, let, let's, for the, for the benefit of people who are listening, like the lesson I take is that we're screwed. And by that, I mean, um, that the successor ideology is so is creating, uh, alternative, uh, it's kind of interesting, right? Because, it's not that they're creating a, uh, so they're creating an alternative ideology. Um, but it's not just that. It's that they are enmeshed in the current system, which is. They are, yes, now they are. I mean, you know, if you wanted, to, I think if, if people wanted to, what, like, what year is it? It's not 
310 it's more no. 395 <laughs> or 400 or maybe it's 392 depending on how um yeah I, how, i'd say it's, it's more like i think it's more like 392 right okay, like i don't yeah. i don't think we've seen the the sacking of the serpentium yet right yes um some statues but, have been toppled some statues <laughs> have been toppled here and there yep yeah. yep so we've had had skirmishes um I guess it's very, I guess where there's a difference is there is no formal church in in the current moment. Well, uh, no, but you could also say there was no, how, how structured was Christianity in the fourth it's, century? It seemed to be pretty, right? Cause they, well, they more so a, than, yeah. Uh, I mean, there was a church, a church had bishops, uh, the, you know, the bishops were very enmeshed in the, elite imperial system the church had a lot of property it had it was supported by the state right so so that doesn't that doesn't exist now i think what's happening now it's kind of a little different it's basically it's co-opting existing institutions and making the final pagan generation of our current time uh kind of irrelevant and if anybody and making them kind of like like the final the original final pagan generation you know people uh like what's the point of fighting with these incremental things you've got a mortgage to pay uh kids to put through school and you know this is you know you you half agree with some of the things that they're saying and you know so you don't say much um you go along to get along and slowly they're getting more and more power uh, they're making changes here and there, right? Uh, and the, if the you only do try to, yeah. if you do try to stand up, you get killed. <laughs> sure. Uh, I mean, the only difference is this was a very doggy dog world. This is very right. Bronze Age mindset, right? Um, you know, and we live in a uh, some would say a liberal democracy. So the you know there are options other than violent struggle or uh, assassination. liberal democracy not a hydraulic like despotism uh, no despotism no, no okay. i don't think so uh although that's up for debate yeah. so you know uh, to me like the perfect like david french the sainted david french is, uh -oh. seems to be a no no i'm not gonna like make fun of him or anything okay um um he would be i would think our equivalent of a final pagan um because yes. but you know it's also not like he doesn't like keep his head down or just no no he's to not a yeah he's not some guy that just has a law degree and just works at a law firm that's what i think of the that's what the the final pagan generation equivalent would be yep. um he tries to fight for what he thinks is right and sues the government and sues universities and, and does all that good stuff but you know one criticism of him that you get from people who are further right and kind of uh, more interested in direct action and that sort of thing is, you know, he's kind of uh, weak. He doesn't understand that he no longer lives in the world that he used to live in. Right. But that, I think, yes, but I think the, so yeah, so that, that's a, the issue here is that if the lesson you take from this book that we read is that if you want to avoid the fate of the final pagan generation, what you have to do is um, not be weak, right? Wake up and see that you are being slowly uh, decimated. And what you have to do is take direct action and kill all the Christians as <laughs> they were doing in the early 310s, right? Uh -huh. Get, so yeah, I get it. You There are a bunch of Christians that owe you favors that you haven't yet cashed in. And that's very valuable. But you know what? Your entire way of life is going to be eradicated if you don't just kill them all, right? Metaphorically. Metaphorically, except back then, Bronze Age mindset, no, it would actually have been- Yeah, all. yeah, exactly. Okay, so if you if you take that metaphor and apply it to today, um, A, I'm not sure that killing them is an option, uh, and B, telling David French to um, stop going, you know, through the, uh, uh, institutional uh system right in, so david french believes that the the, the liberal, yeah, yeah yeah 
if you tell David French to, to, to stop doing that and just take the direct action that you're talking about, um, I think that would be, I think he would say, well, that's a violation of my, of the very, of the very principles I'm trying to defend. Yeah, exactly. And so he can't. And so I think what the people you're talking about on the right um, are saying that that's his problem, right? That he, uh, that you need, sometimes you need to, um, in order to defend the princi your principles, you have to put aside your principles. <laughs> or they would say he hasn't been red-pilled yet. He doesn't understand that he, those principles, no one else believes in those principles, that you're not, you know, you're playing by different rules now. I think that's what they would say, right? Sure, but then he might as well just give up the principles altogether. And, and nobody should have. So, so basically they're agreeing. Uh, so, you know, so when, what's their point? Well, I think what David French would say is, I want those principles to remain. And the yes. way I'm going to do that is I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to observe them and I'm going to work through them because, you know, it's not over yet. The, um, the, uh, what is not the, all, what is, what is the version of the alt-right on the left, the control left, <laughs> whatever. Well, uh, well, you uh, don't know about this? Uh, uh, control delete. So I guess, yeah, I see. Okay, yeah. Not, 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 yeah. Yeah. Control left. Um, <laughs> they haven't fully taken it over yet. You know, we're still, we're not at 393 or 400 or anything. So there's still a chance. I mean, that's what he would say, but right. And, you know, um, yeah. One, one message could be that one takeaway from the book is it's all over. We're all screwed. Yep. Um, and it's just a uh, motto, a motto, got to start, you know, get, get armed <laughs> metaphorically. Um, uh, and what, the other message could be, you know, this tells you that this is something that can happen and is happening. So people who don't like the control left or the woke or any of that need to realize that, you know, you have to use the weapons that the left use to get into power, to get back into power yourselves. And I think that's more of like what Ron Dreher would say. Well, and, uh, and in addition and, um, to the whole Benedict option thing, but <laughs> well, but, but also like, uh, um, Vermeule, what's his face? Oh yes. Adrian Vermeule. Adrian yeah. Vermeule. But, but again, I, I think it's incoherent, uh, what these people are saying. If you use the weapons that the left used, and these are weapons that you have, you know, or, or at least people like David French have been singling out as reprehensible, that we shouldn't allow these kinds of weapons. Right. If you say, fuck it, I have to use it myself, then what are you standing up for? And you went, you know, you, okay, so now you defeat the, the, the left and what have you won? I, I don't. So I, I get it. It's, yeah. it's not, the, the, what's the alternative to that? It's that you may well be lost. I, I think, and, and I guess yeah. that's not comfortable to people. Yes. And I think that's, I mean, there's obviously, because I don't think David French wants what Adrian Vermeule wants, what which is some sort of integralist Catholic I, theocracy. <laughs> Right. right, exactly. So they, they have different goals. So I think that's why thing using the weapons of the left against them would appeal more to someone like Adrian Vermeule because he doesn't really put a lot of... He doesn't have the same principles as Yeah, so that's, you know, that's that, that's the difference. So then I don't think it's this place to critique David French as weak, right? It, 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 oh, I'm not, not saying... Not, not that he has. I have yeah, idea, yeah. But well, he probably surprised has. me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure he has. Um, yeah, so you know, it, 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 the the example doesn't carry over perfectly well to our, our time, obviously. But um, I, I think, like we've discussed, I think those are the, this is what this history book makes you think about. That yeah. these people in the final pagan generation, they just didn't realize what was happening. Yeah, and not only that, but I wouldn't call it their ideology because they they kind of didn't have one. But their their entire system, their entire way of life, actually prevented them from seeing it before it was too late. Yes. And I, and I think that's a, the, the greatest thing I've taken from this book. And, and maybe not just from this book, but just from observing the world uh, and maybe having, you know, uh, this lens, but, uh, you know, people who I, uh, uh, you know, l like and trust and, and you know, otherwise um, am in agreement with that I talk to, um, I, have found myself saying all the time, you know, up to very recently, um, look, this is going to burn itself out. This is not sustainable, right? There are too many internal contradictions. It's not workable. Um, 
it, it just it just needs some time and it will there will be a reaction and i still kind of i still believe that there will be a reaction um but maybe but so but so what the, the serpinaeum was a reaction <laughs> <laughs> right right yeah. uh so i think i'm taking more seriously the idea that uh the faith that i'm placing in i don't know what the system working out the silent uh, majority right yeah uh, it's exactly right the silent majority i'm placing um my faith in that is maybe misplaced because uh, i'm not seeing what's really happening right like i i am in a the frog being boiled slowly so something to think about i don't know uh, also buy buy a gun <laughs> or two <laughs> and the ammo you gotta buy the ammo Everyone yeah that's the hard part yeah. that's the hard part now yeah um i don't know it's it's dangerous talk uh but we have seen gun sales go up through the roof in, in well, that, the, and the, the one of the things again, why this the example from you know the fourth century AD doesn't transfer very well to twenty first twenty first century America is right. we still have the the forms the norms of a liberal democracy. Um, there's not a lot of people putting guns to people's heads and making them do anything, right? It is today. today it is it is a so much of what we see is a result of, you know, social pressure and ostracism and boycotts and canceling and all those other things. But those are part of civil society that supposedly everyone on the right and libertarians yeah, are, are in yeah. love with and want to marry, <laughs> except when it uh, goes against you. And now sure. it's, uh, you know, censorship by Google or whatever. Um, so, well, but some, some of us actually are consistent and the way we address it is by saying, let's build systems that are outside of anybody's control. Exactly. And that's one response uh, yeah. in addition to or opposed to buying a gun is, you know, th this, the, the way the Christians won is they built systems. Yeah. Sure. They, they had emperors on their side and they had funds and resources and, and things started to kind of break their way, but people didn't just sit around thinking that, oh, it's, it's cool now. Uh, everything is just going to, you know, happen because they realize that, no, it's not just going to happen. There's still the final pagan generation in our way. And there's nothing that says we're not going to get a hundred years worth of pagan emperors again. Um, so yeah, it's the building of uh, competing systems and competing networks that eventually you can yep. plug in and, and take over uh, whatever you need to take over. Right. So buy Bitcoin. Interesting. Buy Bitcoin. <laughs> uh, Interesting that you say that we're that you know that the parallel isn't there where no, nobody today is putting a gun to somebody's head and saying you know think this or do that, uh, but we're seeing it a little bit. Um, you know, I, I'm, it reminds me of the protests uh, over last summer, where here in D.C. mobs would approach people who were eating in you know, open air outside of a restaurant and request that they. Um, request <laughs> raise raise your fist or whatever it was that they had to do uh, yeah. yeah yeah and obviously that that sort of thing can can happen and it's more when the elite turn a blind eye to that sort of thing yep it's not like the mayor of dc isn't doing it probably although who knows uh <laughs> uh it's not anyone uh from the police or anything like that but you know, you, as the, the person in charge, you can pick and choose who you punish and what you punish. Right. Um, so that's, you know, that's the danger there, of course. So, yeah. And I, and I realize that there's, there's violence is inherent in the system <laughs> <laughs> and all of that good stuff, but um, you know, we're not to that and, you know, losing your job, you know, being ostracized, uh, nobody wants to talk to you in your neighborhood, uh, that sort of thing is, obviously not as bad as like being enslaved or beaten or shot, but um, it's not great either. Um, All right. Well, yeah. I think if nothing else, this book gives us a great um, language to talk about, to use to talk about what's happening. Right. And I think that the shorthands of pagans and Christians is, uh, is pretty good. Yeah. It's, it's um, it, I would recommend the book. It's definitely a history book. Um, yeah. It, it does maybe require some basic knowledge of like what the Roman empire was. Um, but he does a decent job of explaining a lot of the backstory, not everything. Uh, it's, it's from an academic press. Um, but you, you won't, you won't get lost in all the names if, if you don't want to. No, it's uh, good. It's, yeah. it, it's, it's entertaining. Um, so yeah, yeah I'd recommend it too. 
Yeah, and you definitely get a good feel of like these people lived a long time ago and uh, <laughs> they were still kind of getting up to whatever people were getting up to yeah, <laughs> and are yeah. still doing. So still that, that yeah, that was interesting. Yeah. All right. So next time, uh, my pick, uh, to, my turn to pick. I, you know, we've been reading a bunch of really heady books. Yes. Uh, and I was thinking of picking a book. Like it's like an NBER series book on the gold standard. And I thought, you know what? <laughs> like, it's like a technical discussion of, of uh, uh, the gold standards um, uh, implication in the Great Depression. And I thought, you know what? Uh, maybe instead we should do something light. And so I have chosen The Storm Before the Calm, America's Discord, The Coming Crisis of the 2020s and The Triumph Beyond. Uh, by George Friedman. Uh, George Friedman is uh, one of these uh, geopolitical forecasting guys. He was the founder of Stratfor, um, mm -hmm. you might remember. Um, and it's one of these kind of like pop geopolitics, uh, pop futurology. It's an airport book. It's an airport book, totally. Yeah. Um, and uh, it <laughs> it's funny because uh on the one hand it puts forward uh some crazy theories cyclical theories of history and is uh trying to make predictions about the future based on cyclicality that you know to my mind uh is stupid <laughs> okay. um, what a great recommendation <laughs> but go on but um he also uh has some interesting um, ways of describing the current moment. And more than that, it, I, wouldn't, I won't, wouldn't quite say that he has some prescriptions because he, he, again, he is merely a forecaster looking at the trends, where do they go? He's not making any prescriptions, but in doing that, he, he makes some predictions that could be taken as prescriptions for how to dealing with the, the current moment that I think are very interesting because usually nobody has any prescriptions besides arm yourself as we were just talking about. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. And, he, and here he's got some interesting ones. Uh, so um, that's what we're reading. So the final pagan generation hasn't totally crushed your spirit. You still think there's a chance just uh, judging by the name of the, the, the title of the book. Um, well, so I think, so, okay. Or well, do you want to save it for, uh... no, 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 no. Something else. So this is a further commentary on, on this book. Um, something else I take away from the, from the, uh, final pagan generation is that I'm probably part of the final pagan generation. And these guys all died comfortably in their sleep. <laughs> sure. Basically. And so I, I really think slash hope that, uh, yeah, that, that'll be the case for me. I mean, I can arrange that. Okay. <laughs> uh, I think uh, Pratic Status had like edema or something. So I wasn't that comfortable. Well, but you know what I mean. Yeah. They weren't burned alive. They weren't burned alive. They, they, and they thought everything was fine. Sure. So, all right. Stably, good to talk to you. Yes, Jerry. Another, yeah. another one in the can. <laughs> all right. See you next time. All right. Bye, Jerry. Bye.